Welcome to the Off Ramps Podcast. I'm your host and co-founder of the Off Ramp, Kristen. We know what it's like to feel helpless when faced with the magnitude of the world's problems. You want to do something about it, but don't know how or where to start. Well, that's why we're here. At the Off Ramp, our goal is twofold. First, to keep you informed about the ongoings in immigration, migration, and global affairs. And second, to connect you with opportunities to make a real difference in the lives of forcibly displaced people both near and far. Practical and positive change is possible. Let's work together to make it happen. Full disclosure, we recorded this podcast two months ago, several weeks after the tragic shooting in Atlanta. For some, that event feels like forever ago, and for others, it continues to carry with it sorrow and grief and trauma and fear. In today's conversation, we speak with Cynthia Alds of the Coalition to Combat Human Trafficking in Texas, and we speak with her about human trafficking and its sources, ranging from race and gender, which both played a role in the Atlanta shootings, as well as displacement and poverty, as we're seeing along the U.S.-Mexico border. We didn't air this podcast two months ago because we wanted to point to the need for this to be a conversation that is ongoing, that's always important, not one that takes place only when it's in the news and then quickly subsides. You see, we shouldn't rely on the news cycle to drive our conversations and our actions because things like human trafficking, they don't rely on the news cycle to take place. Human trafficking is an everyday reality and not on the other side of the world, but in our own cities, towns, and neighborhoods. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to this next episode of the Off-Ramps podcast. We actually have some really exciting news, something that's going on at the Off-Ramp, one of our projects that is um, picking back up pace. This is uh, the snack bag project for people at the border. Mom, do you want to fill people in on kind of what's been happening? Yeah, I would love to, as well as a little bit of the history of how that got started. Yes. We've been engaged on the border now for, um, for quite a few years. Um, and one of the things that we noticed quickly is that um, displacement um, makes people vulnerable to human trafficking. And we began to strategize with our friends on the border about what we could do um, to not just rescue people, but prevent human trafficking. Um, And one of the very practical things that we came up with was to provide them a a Ziploc, a gallon Ziploc bag um, filled with a a water bottle, um, you know, some snacks, uh, if there were children, we included like, you know, little things like squeezy pouches, things like that. Because one, they come arrive with nothing. Um, then they're often in transit. They're trying to get someplace else. Um, and a lot of folks were, were meeting them and, and trying to lend them aid while they were at bus stops, et cetera. So we provided these snack bags But in the snack bag, instead of giving the symptoms of human trafficking, we included questions. Has this happened to you? For instance, has somebody tried to confiscate your papers? Has somebody promised you a job that's too good to be true? And several things that a trafficker might say or do um, as a person is approached so that they are aware that this is how it works this is what might happen, and they know immediately to back off and to say no. But just in case, we went ahead and included the National Human Trafficking Hotline number so that if something happened in the regular little snack bag where they're carrying their goodies, um, they had access to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. We gave out literally thousands and thousands of those snack bags. We had so many people coming together, um, putting them, either purchasing the things that go in them or bringing teams to help put them together. And Cynthia and I, I can't tell you how many trips to the border 
we made filling the back of her truck up or our car up with these snack bags. That is a project that we continued um, after the off-ramp began and we partnered with the Coalition to Combat Human Trafficking. It's kind of their project now, but we continue to work with them on it. Well, as everybody knows, um, pandemic happened and there were no more trips to the border and um, the aid that we were able to lend these folks uh, came in other ways like PSA and uh, public service announcements, things like that, but we couldn't continue um, the snack bags. However, um, that has picked back up. The Coalition to Combat Human Trafficking now has their own bag. We're not, no longer using um, gallon Ziploc bags, but they've got a bag that has the, has the, the signs on there, has the, uh, the human trafficking hotline, everything. So they're going to have it with them for a long time to come, right? Not just a, a card that hopefully they can stick somewhere. And they're also putting labels on uh, water bottles, things like that. Um, so we're so pleased that to kick this off, one of our own board members, Dr. Syra Malik, is going to be hosting an event where they're going to be putting together the snack bags for the Coalition to Combat Human Trafficking. And then Cynthia, on one of her trips to the border, will be delivering those snack bags. This is something that anybody anywhere can do. Um, you can put the bags together if you want to, and we'll get them to the border. Um, you can order what we need off of Amazon and have it sent to us so that we can put the bags together. Um, you can have, we've done this before, where we've had um, snack bag packing parties. It's starting up again. It's a, it's a wonderful way to, um, to help these thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are showing up at our border to not end up in a trafficking situation. Anyone can get involved at this level. Anyone. It's, it's Anyone. one of, I think it's our most tangible project um, for people to participate in. Absolutely. The sort of unfortunate theme of today's episode is human trafficking, and it's been in the news a lot lately, and we're going to get into some of that a little bit more specifically uh, as it relates to things like the shootings in Atlanta and gender and race. But right now, I kind of want to back up a little bit. You have been studying and raising awareness of human trafficking and involved in anti-human -tra trafficking programs and measures for nearly two decades now. I was wondering if you could could explain to our listeners how someone becomes vulnerable to human trafficking. It's there's so many misunderstandings and myths surrounding human trafficking. It's as Cynthia often says, it's not the Hollywood version. So how does someone actually become vulnerable to it? There are, there are a lot of things that lead to vulnerability. Um, let, me, let me just say, though, that when we talk about systems of injustice, for the longest time, if you're like me, when I would hear that phrase, my brain shut off. I'm like, what's a system that causes an injustice? And, and honestly, it lets us remove ourselves from the problem. Unless we're really engaged in justice type issues or consider that um, an important part of, of our work in the world, um, you can look at things and say, oh, well, that's not me. And we can blow it off and think that, oh, Maybe someone was in the wrong place at the wrong time, or um, maybe they brought this. That's a common thought is they brought this on themselves. But the truth is that we do have systems in our world that make people vulnerable. And I can just give you loads of statistics, but we don't have time for all of that. But just look it up. Women and children are demographically on every level the most vulnerable population in our world. 
So you have a vulnerability of age. Children cannot protect themselves. And please understand, we are not just talking about sex trafficking here. We are talking about labor and sex trafficking. And children are labor trafficked. People find that hard to believe. And and yes, we want to say, oh, that's over there in third world countries. No, children are labor trafficked even here in the United States. And certainly we know that sex trafficking um, happens. So we have to protect the children. That means we, our communal gathering body, we together need to be looking for legislation and ways that we keep children from being vulnerable to being trafficked. That can be everything from looking at our foster care system. Children in the foster care system are very vulnerable to being trafficked. Um, We need to be looking at education. We lost so many children during the pandemic. We don't even know where they are because they haven't been able to be in school. Um, But also education um, gives you the resources you need as you grow to protect yourself. So we need to be looking at education. We need to be looking at the children who are displaced. I don't care what your politics are. There are thousands of children on our border and their displacement makes them vulnerable to being trafficked. There's many, many ways that our children are vulnerable, but age is a vulnerability. And gender, whether it's because women are more likely to be impoverished, whether it's because women are more likely to be um, in charge of single household families, Um, There are a myriad of reasons that gender makes us vulnerable. Physicality. um, Women are oftentimes simply overpowered and forced. Um, But one of the things that Cynthia will talk about and that I am particularly passionate about getting the word out there is the porn industry. Um, The porn industry not only sexually exploits women, but it uses them as a commodity. And by allowing that industry to continue, we are increasing the vulnerability of gender. Um, We've got to have laws that make it a horrible crime that's severely punishable if, if a woman is trafficked or forced into the sex industry. Uh, We just can't be blind anymore. And when it comes to the issue of pornography, we can't just keep saying, oh, well, boys will be boys. It's just not acceptable any longer. Um, So gender, age, poverty. Listen, everybody wants to make a living. Everybody wants to survive. And if you can't, then you are vulnerable because when somebody comes up and says, I can let you work today and you will eat tonight, you're going to think about it, right? Even if it means you will sell yourself in ways that you wouldn't want to otherwise. Um, And people will exploit that vulnerability. Um, So we have to address poverty on that level, but systemic. Human trafficking is happening because we have impoverished counties, communities, and countries. And it's a world problem. It can't just be over there. It has to be our problem. It's a system that makes people vulnerable. And the huge elephant in the room is the vulnerability of race and ethnicity. Let me tell you when this was really driven home to me. A young white woman was trafficked, girl, she was, I think she was 17, she might have been 18, trafficked in Houston, came from an affluent family that had connections. The city turned upside down until that girl was brought home. But the Latino community, African-American community, communities of color 
lost their girls to trafficking every day. And we didn't do anything about it or did very little. So why isn't rescuing those girls just as important as rescuing this white girl from an affluent community? That drove home to me the issues of race and ethnicity. And if you look at those who are vulnerable, you've got many of these things in play. Maybe they've got the gender at play, the age at play, the poverty at play, as well as the race and ethnicity. Um, When you put these factors, just one of them make you vulnerable. But when you put a lot of them together, you're going to survive. And when trafficking is out there and people know they can exploit you and use you or force you, they're going to do it. So these systems of vulnerability make it a higher than normal possibility that that a person could be trafficked. Systems of injustice. We know that none of this is easy to talk about. None of it is easy to listen to. And to be quite honest, the conversation that we had with Cynthia that you're going to hear in a moment was a very difficult one. Uh, We stopped and started and cried and were anxious. I personally have to overcome a lot of self-doubt and fear in engaging in conversations like these about the roles of poverty and class and race and gender and age when it comes to things like human trafficking. I feel so inadequate when I engage in that type of conversation. And yet we can't let that stop us because if nothing else, then it is our responsibility to participate in those conversations, to to continue raising awareness and to, to continue looking at how we play a part Um, in those very same systems that make those people vulnerable and how can we can how can we limit our participation in that Um, so I think that would be mm -hmm. I think that would be my challenge to our listeners too these conversations are hard because you have to look at yourself Mm. and it's not pleasant and I don't know about you but I still dig up things inside myself and I go whoa wait a minute um, all the time. And and it's just hard work. Yeah. And it's easier to just avoid the conversation. So please don't avoid listening. Please don't avoid thinking. Please don't avoid pondering. Let these things just mull around in your mind and examine yourself. It's only when each of us begin to do that, we are going to begin to stop some of these vulnerabilities. Hi, everyone. We are back with Cynthia Alds of the Coalition to Combat Human Trafficking in Texas. Cynthia, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am very pleased to be here today and appreciate the opportunity. Well, we appreciate you joining us, even if it is to talk about some things that, you know, are just hard to talk about. I think one of the things that's really important um, to, to perhaps go ahead and bring up is that this is not a one issue situation. We're talking about the shootings in Atlanta um, a few weeks ago. And and honestly, my mind is still reeling from it. Um, And I'm sure it is for our listeners as well. But it's a multi-layered issue, isn't it, Cynthia? Um, There's issues of race. There are issues of pornography. There are issues of hate crimes. There are issues and um, situations related to massage parlors and um, the possibility of uh, what happens in the sex industry and the possibility of the people who may be trafficked in that industry. And all of this gets twined up in the whole race issue as well, doesn't it? It it absolutely does. And, And that's a great point because Human trafficking itself is such a complex issue. 
And we can't talk about human trafficking without talking about racism. We can't talk about human trafficking without talking about pornography. We can't talk about human trafficking without addressing the vulnerabilities of different populations. And so all those issues come into play and all those issues are a critical part of why human trafficking is the industry that it is today. And so, um, again, despite the complexity of it, despite the difficulty of talking about it and addressing all these issues and trying to break them down, we have to continue making the efforts to do so. There's a lot we don't know. We obviously just get reports. Um, and information, and, and so there's, you know, there's some stuff that's known, there's some stuff that's not, but we have to keep moving forward in trying to dissect that as best we can and determine how we can use that information to continue moving forward to stopping the exploitation of human beings, period. I mean, <laughs> We have to take those steps, but you're right. It is a multi, multi, multi-layered um, complex issue. The Asian American women um, who were shot in Atlanta a few weeks ago worked in what's being called in the news massage parlors. And I know that you two, when you took tours of sort of human trafficking tours to raise awareness in Houston and the surrounding areas, you, you referenced or even took people or pointed out massage parlors. Is that not true? That those are, those are often places that are not sort of on the books or official or regulated. And so things that we like to turn away from often happen in these places. Can you describe what these types, these massage parlors are and why this is coming up in the news and bubbling to the surface as part of the story surrounding the shootings in Atlanta? I think what we have to understand is that there are legal massage parlors. There are legitimate massage parlors. There are people that are, are, are working in these establishments willingly. But I have, I, I think we have to also not be naive and, and not stick our heads in the sand. And we have to realize that many others of these individuals can and can be and are victims of labor and sex trafficking. That, that they are, they're lied about, um, about the nature of the job. Maybe they're, they're working up debts. They're, they're, they're forced to um, live inside the businesses, potentially, you know, whatever the, the cases may be in the different um, circumstances. But like so many establishments, there are some that are legitimate and fine, but there are many that are not. And, and we, we have to address those and we have to look at those issues and we have to determine which ones those are. And we have to help those individuals. Again, if we just go back to the basic definition of human trafficking, if someone through force, fraud, or coercion is forced to commit a commercial sex act, well, if there is force, fraud, or coercion going on in these establishments in order for these individuals to perform particular acts, then there is human trafficking taking place. And so that has to be addressed and we have to get those individuals the help that they need. They are the victims. There, there is a narrative. And again, we can't say for sure whether these women were involved in some sort of exploitation or not. But for women who are, there is a narrative as part of this story that, well, they were just prostitutes. Well, they were they were just sex workers. Um, again, we don't even know if that's true. And, and the fact that that's being assumed points to racism, misogyny and bias. But if it is true, and for those for whom it is true, why is it wrong for us to just sort of assume that they're in control of what they do and how they spend their time and how they make their money? I think it goes back to the, the force, fraud, or coercion. I think we have to make that central distinction that it, it, it's difficult, but we have to distinguish 
prostitution from an individual who is sex or labor trafficked. And we have to go back and we have to look at the force, fraud, or coercion. And we have to see if somebody is willingly choosing to be in a position or if they are, through the use of force, fraud, or coercion, performing those duties. There are so many sides to this story that we're not going to be able to explore. And one of them is the objectification of AAPI women. But there are significant ties between pornography in general and human trafficking. Uh, and mom, you, you mentioned that earlier. I'd like to explore the relationship, and I'll open this up to both of you. I'd like to explore the relationship between pornography and human trafficking, as well as a little bit about race and the vulnerabilities that exist among women of color in particular to trafficking. Can, can either of you speak to one or both of those issues? What we have not understood about pornography is that pornography actually changes the brain. It changes how your brain thinks. It changes how you see women. It changes how you objectify women. Um, but it literally becomes like a drug. Um, and changes your brain in the same way that a drug does. Um, so there are things that if you were not engaged in pornography might never occur to you. But after over a period of time of extended exposure, um, you begin to think that certain things are not only okay, but necessary and acceptable. Um, and you know, there, there, there's plenty of work out there done, um, scholarly work on pornography that shows that. But we have for so long thought of pornography as a freedom of speech issue um, or as a free will issue rather than a public health issue. But it is a public health issue. And so um, I, think, I think for that reason, it's important to bring this subject up. But not only does pornography increase your, your, the brain's objectification of the other sex, um, it also predisposes you to greater and greater levels of acceptable, I say that in quotation marks, violence um, and acting out that violence. Um, as far as the race issue, for me, it's not just a question of, um, oh, this race is vulnerable or that race is vulnerable. It's a question of we have systems that make races vulnerable. We have a system of poverty that makes certain races um, more vulnerable to the need to search out any way to make a living, um, to survive. And that, that's, that's on us. Those are our systems. Um, and those races then become um, vulnerable to being trafficked. Um, so not only just the history that's involved in terms of how races have been traditionally objectified and, um, and you know, subjected in so many ways, to the power and will of others. Um, we have systems in our society that creates that vulnerability as well. And I, I think Nell hit on some major points there and going back to the, the pornography, you know, the, the thing that's amazing to me is I don't, I don't think you can necessarily separate them because oftentimes pornography is sex trafficking. And, and it's, you know, it's just, it's kind of amazing to me that individuals who say they're against human trafficking, they would never do anything to be involved in human trafficking are watching videos that they have no idea if those people were coerced into doing those videos or not. So they could be sitting there watching trafficking taking place in viewing the pornography. So you cannot, um, not correlate the, the two together, or you don't know that the individual that you're watching is of legal age. 
and it does not even require force, fraud, or coercion if an individual is under 18. It is, it is trafficking. So if you're sitting there watching a minor, you're, you're, <laughs> you're viewing sex trafficking. And so for somebody to say that pornography is okay, but, but human trafficking is not, it, it, to me, I, that always kind of boggles my mind. And so I think we have to open our eyes and not just say that pornography is okay, or if someone chooses to be a prostitute, it's okay, because you don't know the whole story. You don't know, is it someone who has chosen, and I use that term, not lightly, because I don't think anybody ever really chooses it's kind of the choice of the choiceless for the vulnerable population. Um, but if somebody ends up in the role as a prostitute, you can't just assume that that individual is not being trafficked. A friend of mine is, um, is of Asian American descent and she posted a, a blog post. It was meant to be read, you know, in, I think she said can be read on, in under two minutes. It was just, a list of ways that she has been targeted uh, for her appearance because she is obviously um, a member of the AAPI community. And one of the, the themes that was reiterated in many of those experiences was the her object, objectification as a woman of Asian American descent. Um, so much of our media, even beyond pornography, supports this particular sort of crossover between misogyny and racism. Do you see that same intersection of misogyny and racism in human trafficking? So there are certain things that are at play here. One, we have history, right? We, we have a history of, the, of people of color being used, used literally sexually um, by others. You know, in our history of slavery, um, we have very much a, a rape culture among um, people who are traveling the refugee highway or traveling an immigrant highway. Um, for Asian women in our history, um, even when they were coming um, to the United States, you know, all those many years ago, um, we automatically thought of them in our culture on a sexual basis, you know? Um, I mean, we just thought that's who they were and that's how they lived. So we have a culture and we have a history and a way of thinking about women of other races as sexual objects. That is not something that we can take out of our DNA just by saying, oh, I'm not a racist, that it doesn't happen that easily. We have to look at the things that we have in place in our society that, that permits that. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's not just a question of the, of the misogyny. Um, yes, we do have men who exploit and objectify women, but how do we, as a people, regard people of, of how, as a society, not just as people, but as our culture and as a society, see people of color? If in our back of our thinking, we're thinking the way we thought historically, then we are going to be okay with the exploitation occurring and we're not gonna stop it. And Cynthia alluded to that earlier when she said, these are tough subjects and, and goodness knows we're probably not treating them as well as I would like and as well as we could. But to simply not treat it is to say it's okay for this to go on. The reality is, is that we do have massage businesses where women are consistently exploited and used. And the majority of the women in those businesses are women of color. Why? 
If we are not willing to ask those questions and deal with it, then we continue to think the way we thought historically, which is, oh, well, they chose this, or they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, or this is just how, you know, this is because of the neighborhood they were raised in, or whatever you might, you know, parameters you might want to put around it, rather than thinking, wait a minute, what have we done as a society that has created this massive vulnerability to women of color? And what are we going to address historically that has permitted us to think that way? And, you know, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to say, sorry, I've had to confess as well. Um, when I first started dealing with the issue of human trafficking, I had to look at the way I thought about some of these things. And I had to look. That's when I changed my vocabulary. I refuse to use the word prostitute any longer. I, I, I think it is a label that is in itself objectifying and um, demeaning. And so I, I won't use it unless I need it to communicate clearly. Um, but again, to assume that because someone is of a certain color, that they then are automatically um, predisposed or going to become a part of this type of exploitation is wrong. We don't think in terms of what's the best that this person can be and how can I help them get there? And that's how we need to be thinking about each other. I want to build on what you just said about how can I help? Um, I think having these conversations is incredibly important, but there also needs to be a, a practical piece to these conversations. What can our listeners do to address these existing vulnerabilities among women of color when it comes to, to trafficking? Is there something that they can do? The mindset has to change. I think people have to say nobody exists for the, pro the profit or the pleasure of another human being. That's not okay. I mean, our mindset has to change. If, if, if I think that's the most important thing people can do. I mean, dignity of another human being has to matter, period, the end. And if we can accept that and say, Dignity of this individual, Asian, Black, Hispanic, white, male, female, you know, whatever. It matters. Every individual matters, and it's not okay to exploit them. It's not okay for them to be a piece of property. You know, it's an easy thing to say, change our mindsets, right? Haven't, haven't we been talking about that now? Um, this last year, as the Black Lives Matter movement has um, gained such impetus, of which, of which I'm very glad for, um, when we say change our mindset, that's more often than not, and I'm talking about myself here, I'm thinking I'm not abnormal, more often than not, I'm thinking you need to change your mindset, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what we've got to do is dissect ourselves. Right which means you have to be willing to say, well, wait a minute, what did I think as soon as I heard about those shootings? What labels did I put on people as soon as I heard about those shootings? What did I think about the man who shot those people? What did I think about the pornography that he said had gripped his life? Mindsets only change when we start looking at ourselves and so I go back to what Cynthia said at the beginning. Yes, these are really hard conversations, but if we don't have them, those mindsets will never get changed. You also do a lot of work at the border through CCHT, Cynthia. And to quote mom in her email to, uh, to us earlier, things are heating up. <laughs> Can you tell us what she meant by that and what you guys are doing right now 
still in a period of pandemic to to help? We we obviously are are seeing some increase in potential um, trafficking of individuals. And as we continue our work along the border, we want to make sure that we are doing everything we possibly can to reach as many individuals as we can. We continue to have to do like so many um, as COVID continues and, and try and figure ways to think outside the box, think how we can continue to reach individuals, but um, still be safe um, and not put anybody at risk in those type things. But one of the things I'm super excited about, one of the things we've done extensively and we continue to do are snack bags. So what we have done in the past is we have taken snack bags down with you know cheese and crackers and and water bottles and fruits and or, or canned fruits and and granola bars and that type thing but we've always put them in ziploc bags and we got to thinking that what if we got some little totes that they could keep and what if on those totes we put the national human trafficking hotline number and so we're like, that way, they'll always have it. And they're going to keep those totes. Everybody always has a little something they've got to carry. So how about if all those totes are lying around everywhere and that National Human Trafficking Hotline number is lying around and they remember, you know, we're still putting the information in there. We're still asking the questions. Is this happening to you? Is this the position you find yourself in? Um, are, are these things occurring, that type thing. So they're still getting the information, but to keep that number at the forefront. And so we're super excited to be making that transformation that instead of using the Ziploc bags, now we'll be using the little totes and then they will be able to keep those reusable totes and the human trafficking hotline number will hopefully be um, distributed or, or, or be seen all over the place, not only by the ones who receive the tote, but maybe by somebody who just sees the bag um, lying there. And then the other thing we've come up with, the, the snack bags don't cost us a whole lot per bag, two to three dollars, but we figured out, we were like, how can we reach even more people? So we said, what if we take that same information and we put it on a water bottle? A water bottle costs 10 cents. So we had labels printed that asked the same questions and put the National Human Trafficking Hotline number on those. We had some printed in English, some in English in uh, Spanish, and same thing. Now we'll distribute the water bottles. We can go down there and do 10, 20, 30 cases of water bottles and reach hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people for an incredibly minimal cost. So those are just kind of some of the trying to th again think outside the box if we're seeing more people if we're seeing the potential for more individuals um, to be potential victims how are we gonna in turn act and reach more individuals so those those are a couple of ways that we're looking at Can you speak a little bit more to why there's been an increase in the potential for for individuals to be trafficked and why that's especially taking place on the border, I'm not sure that even I understand why that's happening. So I think what we have to look at here is not necessarily just the why, um, but the what. The what is movement. When people move, as these folks are moving, they become vulnerable. Um, and uh, vulnerable to all sorts of exploitation, okay? Um, we, we know that women are vulnerable to rape while they're on the, the highway. Um, we know that um, people become extremely vulnerable to labor trafficking. Um, poverty puts them, uh, poverty while they're on the road puts them in a position of perhaps listening to uh, people proposing to them jobs that are too good to be true, and they really are too good to be true. So the issue that's at hand here is movement. So what can we do, one, to either help them become stable where they're at, which, um, Kristen, that's what the off-ramp is all about, right? Um, we, we are all about helping people try to reach a stability where they're at, 
no matter where that is, so that they don't need to move. If they're in the midst of movement, how can we help them stay safe, which are some of the things that CCHT is doing. Um, and once they then reach a point of destination, wherever that is, and however they get there, we want them to then reach stability because we don't want them to remain vulnerable to the same forces that would continue to exploit them. So for me, the issue at this point is not necessarily what are the politics, what are the problems that led to this? Yes, those are issues and there are people better poised than I am to address them. But the issue we can address in human trafficking and through the off-ramp is movement. And what does this movement make you vulnerable to? And I think talking about that movement too, I think it's critical that we distinguish human smuggling from human trafficking. Yes, absolutely. That's another thing that there is a lot of confusion on and, and you hear the terms used interchangeably and they are not the same thing. Human smuggling is the movement across the border. Human trafficking is the force fraud of coercion to get somebody to commit an act. So we have to be very careful that some of the instances we're seeing are human smuggling, not human trafficking. But we also need to be very clear that it is very common for human smuggling instances to lead to human trafficking because of the movement, the very movement that Nell just talked about. A theme that is surfacing as part of both of these conversations that we're having with regard to the border, but also the shooting in Atlanta is one of vocabulary. You know, mom saying you don't ever really use the word prostitute anymore and the need to talk about things like racism and misogyny and um, and now being sure that we're, we're clear on differences between smuggling and trafficking. And can you speak to the role that vocabulary plays in sometimes confusing the issue of trafficking itself um, and how how maybe one of the greatest things that we all can participate in is just learning to use the right words. And the, the vocabulary is huge. And I think that's part of why, in our opinion, the awareness and the education is so huge because that's part of the training that we do. What is the difference in human smuggling versus trafficking? What is the difference in an individual who may choose to um, work in a massage parlor versus someone who is doing it through being a victim of labor or sex trafficking. What are the different terms that you will hear? What are the different red flags? What are the different indicators? What are they not? What, you know, and it, it, it's, it's also very similar to like the myths and misconceptions. There's so many myths out there. There's so many misconceptions. You know, human trafficking is not the Hollywood version. That is a huge part of our training. And that to us is why we feel the training and the awareness and the education is such a huge component to get out there to the individuals. Because if, if you don't understand what it really is, you're gonna have a hard time seeing it. And if you don't see it, you can't report it if you don't see it for what it really is. And so to, to us, the vocabulary is a, is a tremendously important factor. The education is a tremendous factor and, and it's in large part why we do so many of the trainings, so many of the events and why one of the things I'm super proud of that CCHG really focuses on is the general public. They're the eyes and the ears, and they're the ones that are out everywhere, every day, seeing so much, um, being around in so many different instances and circumstances that other organizations, you know, there's a lot of great organizations out there doing a lot of great work, but they can't be everywhere doing everything. 
the, you know, the general public, everyday citizens can make a huge impact on human trafficking, but the awareness, the vocabulary, the education, it has to be out there. So I, I think it plays a hugely critical role in, in impacting trafficking. My question is, where do you find the hope? But maybe an even better question is, do you find hope? You know, it, 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 it's kind of funny that you asked that because somebody called me just a couple of days ago and their first words, their, their first words in the conversation and this individual lives close to the border and their first words were, man, you don't stand a chance. And I thought, what do you mean? And they started talking about things and, you know, how, how, how do y'all do it? How, why do you do it? You, you don't, you don't stand a chance. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's so out of control. It's so big. It, 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 why, why are you even trying to make a difference? And, and I was, I was pretty blown away. I mean, I, I'll be honest. There are days I feel like that. There, I, you know, I, I'm human. There are days that it, it, it gets, it gets really overwhelming, and it, it doesn't seem like we can make a difference. But I think there's two things. I think there's kind of the story side of it, if you will, that. You know, those that know the, the, the starfish story. Um, it, it, it's one of my favorites. And, you know, if you don't know it, the, you know, the little boy that walks with his mom along the beach every morning and all these starfish have watched, washed up and he picks one up and he throws it back, picks another one up, throws it back and does that every morning. And this old man is setting up on his porch and he's watching this little boy one day he can't take it any longer and he goes down and he's like what are you doing you every morning you walk along here and you throw some of these starfish back but the next day there's a thousand more what are you doing what good are you doing and that little boy looked up at that man and he said but did that one made a difference and, and that's what it is to that one, it makes a difference. And if we can make a difference to one or two or a hundred, we can't make a difference to a million, but we can make a difference to one or two or a hundred or whatever that number may be. And so I will argue with the person that called me and told me we don't stand a chance because to that one or that two or that hundred, we do, and they're worth it. And so we'll keep fighting. Thanks for listening to the Off Ramps podcast. If you were inspired to act during this conversation, you can find us and learn more at theofframp.org or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Helplessness and hopelessness do not have to define your future or the world's. Become a change maker today.